This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 101 of Compliance Into the Weeds podcast, where with Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds to take on a topic. First, have you ever considered starting a podcast? I am looking for podcasters to join me on the Compliance Podcast Network. So if you've ever thought that you might have a story to tell or people to talk to or just wanted to check out a podcast, I hope you would consider joining the Compliance Podcast Network. To help you understand how to start this process, I hope you will enjoy the message from our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Today, Matt and I take on the Vantage Drilling FCPA enforcement action. It had lots of interesting twists and turns, but it turns out quite a few lessons for the compliance practitioner. So we take a look at the case, take a deep dive into it, uh, bat it back and forth. We both blogged on it, so we had a lot of information to share. It's something that I think you will uh, greatly enjoy and get a lot out of and take away multiple lessons learned. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance. This is the podcast where we take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Today, we're going to take up the Vantage Drilling FCPA enforcement action, which was announced last week. Both Matt and I have blogged about it. And um, so, Matt, first of all, uh, post happy Thanksgiving and welcome. Thank you, Tom. It's always good to be here. So, uh, did uh, you guys have any fallout from the storm that started yesterday? Uh, we have had no real fallout from any storm up here in Boston. No, we did have the coldest Thanksgiving ever last week, where it was a chipper 12 degrees on Thanksgiving morning and pretty much stayed there all day long. Um, but other than that is the typical November gloom for uh, Boston here, and that's about all. Well, Matt, speaking of gloom uh, and doom or something else, I found this uh, enforcement action to be a part of an ongoing saga that was just fascinating. Uh, you want to give uh, the listeners a little background into this case? Oh, boy. This is going to be a tall order um, because really to understand what went on with Van- Vantage Drilling, you almost need like a flow chart and cast of characters. Uh, I will do my best. 
so what happened is that Vantage Drilling uh, was launched in the mid-2000s, I think in 2006, uh, went public in 2007 as a high-end driller, actually a ultra-high-end driller, uh, selling its services to large oil companies. I do not know the difference between a high-end and an ultra-high-end driller, but they were ultra-high-end, and uh, they did want to target Petrobras, the state-owned oil company in Brazil. So right away, we know we're in for a good story. Um, the only issue with Vantage going public and offering these high-end drilling services is that it, Vantage actually had no actual assets. So uh, to find the assets that it could then use to sell these services to Petrobras or anybody else, uh, they wound up uh, connecting with a man in the SEC's complaint against Vantage, only identified as Director A, a Taiwanese shipping magnate. Now, it has been disclosed elsewhere. That Director A, his actual name is Sin Chi Su. Um, it sounds more James Bond and sexy to call him Director A, so I'll probably do that most of the time. Uh, but they put Director A on their board uh, and gave him $56 million in cash, gave him 40% of the company's stock, which made him the single largest shareholder in Vantage, uh, and appointed him to the board in exchange uh, Director A was going to give the rights to Vantage that he owned to purchase a deep water drill ship called the Titanium Explorer that was being built in a Korean shipyard. And it was scheduled to be completed and Director A would take delivery in 2012. That was five years in the future from when they did all of this putting Director A on the board in 2007 in exchange for being able to get the rights to that ship in 2012. Now, mistake number one for Vantage they did no due diligence on Director A at that time. Had they done that, they would have found out that, wait for it, Director A had no money himself to get that ship from the Korean <laughs> shipyard. So then all of these hijinks ensue that at this point, if you've followed a lot of FCPA enforcements, you can almost guess what happened. But um, you know they eventually bailed Director A out, and then they did get their hands on the ship. Um, but later on, Director A wound up working with Intermediary A and Intermediary B, who worked in Brazil, uh, and then wound up funneling bribery money that Director A had to Intermediaries A and B, who then funneled the bribes to Petrobras so that Vantage could win all of these drilling contracts for the ship that um, I'm not even sure actually ever got delivered. We'll have to revisit that in a moment. But that's the rough outline here is there's Director A and intermediaries A and B are the key players that got Vantage into so much trouble with bribery payments in Brazil. So let me just add a, a couple of things and, and one observation. I really don't find it odd that they would hire uh, enter a relationship with Director A since he had no money, since they had no assets. Um, so it, it seemed to me to be two birds of a feather there. And my Fair question point. was when I read the introduction – on the SEC uh, cease and desist order was how did they ever go public? But um, other other topics for other days. A yeah. uh, couple of other points. There was actually, in addition to intermediaries A and B, there was Agent A. And Agent A was hired directly by Vantage, who, of course, did no due diligence on Agent A. Mm -hmm. All of this led to the uh, Department of Justice in the 2000. In the summer of 2017, actually issuing issuing a declination to Vantage Drilling, which now I'm even scratching my head more. 
nevertheless, they got a full declination, not declination with disgorgement, uh, just a decision not to prosecute. And uh, I believe the drill ship was delivered because um, Petrobras uh, uh, canceled the contract and then Vantage yes. A uh, brought suit against them or rather an arbitration proceeding against them and won a $622 million award, which they are attempting to execute on. So um, the original Vantage drilling uh, was, was put in bankruptcy. Uh, the current Vantage drilling was a former subsidiary of the now bankrupt Vantage drilling entity. So there's the successor in interest. So uh, it really, uh, the flow charts, the uh, scorecard to keep all of the players, uh, the monikers are just classic. Uh, but I, th- uh, I guess I found a couple of interesting points. Uh, even if you start with a company that has no assets, assets uh, paying $56 million to someone who has no money uh, for something that's going to be delivered five years in the future, uh, perhaps it's not, un- not unsuspected that they, they would uh, be nefarious. But the thing that really struck me, Matt, that was a lesson learned for the compliance practitioner was the nefarious director A. And the thing that struck me is he was um, admitted to the board of directors. He was given 40% of the company's stock, but he also was the largest supplier to the company. And it really drove home to me the need for companies to have more fluidity and flexibility in their compliance programs to understand that simply because you label someone a director or simply because you label a transaction a certain way, it may have other implications and other risks that you're not taking account of. You know, that's very true. And I have often said that um, if you are thinking about third-party oversight generally, most compliance officers, most companies, their starting point has been for some time now, we have to do due diligence on our third parties for anti-bribery risk. And one of the big challenges is that you also these days have to think about data security risks, reputation risks. Um, Occasionally, you might even go old school and remember that some of your third parties might be key suppliers and there's just operational risk on all of this other stuff. Um, But it does drive home the point, why do we need to do ethics due diligence on third parties anyways? Because probably if they're pretty sketchy in one way, they're going to be sketchy in another way. It's just something I have learned in my own time on this planet, and I think most other people agree with that. Um, doing due diligence, not even just, you know, who is this person, where have they come from, which is absolutely necessary, but just are they the right type of people that we agree with and we like their moral behavior? Um, you have to do that because, like I said, if they're sketchy in one way, they're probably going to be sketchy in other ways, and that is exactly what happened here. Director A basically stiffed them on the promise of being able to pay for that ship. And that should have been a red flag right there. And then several years later, here is Director A and Agent A and Intermediary B. I think I had Intermediary A and Agent A conflated, but Agent A in the SEC complaint, not Intermediary A. But all three of these people, shock and surprise, they also got together to decide to funnel bribery payments to Brazil. Um, you know, one other point that I did think was interesting, and I'll go into a little bit more about why in, in a moment, is that how all this came to light is because intermediary B, I believe it is, um, essentially flipped uh, on Vantage to Brazilian investigators as part of Operation Car Wash. 
Um, and then once the Brazilian regulators knew about it, it was only going to be a matter of time before U.S. regulators and law enforcement also heard about it. And then here we are with the five million in disgorgement. Um, but it shows the increasing enforcement risk for U.S. listed companies by more stringent anti-corruption regimes in other countries. Brazil had been stepping up its anti-bribery enforcement, um, and therefore Brazil was the one who found out about uh, Intermediary B or Agent A or whichever one it was. I think it might have actually been Agent A, but um, it was because of that that then the exposure was traced back to the U.S. companies. And this is on my mind because just this week I've been noticing and writing about new reforms to criminal procedure in China and in Russia, where both of them are modernizing their law enforcement and specifically corporate criminal misconduct laws to entice more companies there to cooperate with law enforcement there around anti-bribery. Now, if a company there is also the intermediary for you here, your enforcement in risk has increased because of law enforcement changes over there. Look, we all know Russia and China are also a bit corrupt, and maybe they're going to use their laws for selective enforcement. Doesn't necessarily make a difference, but why do you need more due diligence on your intermediaries over there? Because the enforcement regimes over there are more sophisticated now, and we'll be able to bring more pressure on those companies to uh, give up the goods on anybody else who's involved in a corruption scheme. The anybody else over there is us over here. And that is a point I think compliance officers really need to keep aware of is this is happening and happening over and over in more countries. You know, that's a great insight, Matt. And that's the the um, the my other observation about some this case and some of the other SEC enforcement actions this year, while the fine amount was not uh, particularly high in many of these cases, some of the insights and ways that uh, compliance practitioners could slice and dice them and use that information, uh, they've really packed a lot of that into these orders, and they're usually sort of six to nine pages. So it's a, it's a great insight and something that every compliance practitioner needs to be cognizant of. Uh, literally on a day-by-day basis is the way things are changing now. Yeah. And, um, you know, for the record, the reason that uh, Vantage apparently only paid $5 million in disgorgement and no other fees or penalties or something is because uh, Vantage currently has uh, almost no money. And it is trading at, I think, um, it's a penny stock. And I think literally it, the share price is somewhere near one penny, not 50 cents or 70 cents. It was very low for quite a while now. Um, but yet again, just driving home the point that poor ethics and compliance early in the company's history can lead to dramatic and uh, galvanizing events such as loss of the Petrobras contract, going into bankruptcy, stumbling out of bankruptcy. The vantage that is today is not the corrupt entity that uh, apparently was vantage before, but um, – you know, fat lot of good that is doing Vantage shareholders right now. They really have suffered immensely uh, over the last several years because of um, inattention to third-party risks back then and, uh, you know, ignoring red flags around these third parties, Director A and Agent A and Intermediary B. There was clear evidence that the leadership advantage at the time had that there were, you know, red flags they should have acted on. They didn't. And look where it's brought the company now. And there's innocent people here today that are kind of suffering along and paying for the sins of their predecessors. 
Well, Matt, you just stole my ending line that I was going to use. <laughs> but since you stole it, I'm going to use it anyway. And it really actually, I'm stealing it from you because it came out of the last uh, paragraph of your blog post because I thought sure. it succinctly stated it as well as uh, as you could. And it <clears throat> says, quote, but frankly, who cares? We've seen these tales of due diligence and third-party oversight before, and we'll see them again. Imagine how much more money Vantage could have returned to its shareholders if it just took the time to toss out Director A in 2007 as soon as he showed how shaky he was. And uh, that was extraordinarily well said and I think encapsulated not only multiple reasons for enforcement, multiple reasons for the SEC to enforce the FCPA, but also some good common business sense. Amen. Hello again, this is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. And as you could clearly tell, Matt and I had a great time uh, hashing this one out. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. If you've never um, rated our podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do so. If you've listened to us on iTunes, it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about this most unique podcast, which really takes a deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic. I hope you'll join us again next week when Matt and I come up with another topic to take a deep dive into. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.